one and everyone. Our reading today is from John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. John chapter 12, from verse 37 to verse 50. We'll just wait while the, while the kids head out. So this is John chapter 12, reading from verse 37. This is God's word. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their ears nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, do please keep that passage open in front of you. And uh, I'm going to pray. God, our Father, we know that only when you open a door for the word into our hearts can your word enter and change us. So we pray that as we come to your word now that you would do that work of opening that door into each heart here this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I um, found myself discipling a businessman. Uh, this man was in his early 40s, and uh, he had a very responsible position in one of the major South African banks. He was married with a young family, and on the surface, it seemed that his life was stable, 
and his prospects were very encouraging. After one particular outreach event that we had, he came to see me and said he wanted to know more about Jesus, and I agreed to meet with him in the evenings once a week so that we could read the Bible together. Uh, We did that for a number of months, and uh, as the weeks went by, I thought that the light really was beginning to dawn in his heart, that he really was beginning to understand the gospel. And uh, each time we met, I felt sure that he was actually on the brink of giving his life to Jesus. But he never actually did. And uh, in the end, we we stopped meeting. Uh, I felt that I had taught him to the very, very best of my ability. But uh, he was stuck. And uh, something, was, something was holding him back. Uh, there, was, there was something in his refusal to commit that was, that was almost willful, I thought. And it seemed to me that continuing to meet was actually doing him more harm than good. Now, friends, what is that? What is that? Uh, you may have experienced the same thing with someone you know, perhaps a friend, maybe another member of the family, you can see that they've got a pretty good grasp of the basics, that there's actually not very much that you're going to be able to teach them that they haven't already heard several times before. But they just won't take the next step. Now that is the problem that John is addressing in our Bible passage this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we saw, didn't we, that chapter 12 is a bridge in John's book. So uh, the first 11 chapters, um, John has given us a number of miracles that Jesus performed. And all of those miracles or signs are pointing to the divine nature of Jesus. Uh, he, He does things that only God could do. And that part of the book is sometimes called the book of signs. And then chapter 13 begins an entirely new section in John's Gospel that describes for us the last few days of Jesus' life on earth as he prepares to go to the cross. So chapter 12 is a bridge between the signs and the suffering. And uh, our passage today is kind of a summary of everything that's happened until now. For that reason, the first thing John tells us in verse 37 is, I think, rather discouraging. Look down at verse 37. John says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now, I think the obvious question at that point is, well, why not? And I think it's an important question because there are people today who will say, well, if only we had more signs and wonders, more people would believe. And I think John would say to that, no, you're quite wrong. There's a much deeper reason why people don't believe. And that's because in the majority of cases, listen to me now, unbelief is a disease. Uh, In medicine, 
Pathology is the field of study that examines the, the nature of physical illness with a view to finding a cure. What I want to do together with you in the next few minutes is for us to consider the pathology of unbelief. Our method will be to use the case study of Jewish unbelief in the time of Jesus in order to understand why men and women still contract this disease today and to see what, if anything, can be done about it. So just three simple headings this morning. Number one, the cause of unbelief. Number two, the symptoms of unbelief. And number three, the cure for unbelief. So number one then, the cause of unbelief. Uh, John begins his analysis of the situation in verse 38 by quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 1 and applying it to Jesus. Look at what he says. Uh, verse 38, Lord, who has believed our message? Those words come straight out of Isaiah 53. And here it means... Who has believed the teaching of Jesus? Answer, hardly anybody. Uh, Eleven disciples and maybe a handful of other people. Think about that. When God himself came to earth in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, the result in his lifetime was a tiny, tiny group of believers. That's all. But he goes on, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, quoting Isaiah. In other words, who has seen with their eyes the signs and wonders Jesus performed, doing things which only Almighty God could do? Answer, thousands of people. Thousands. I mean, just think of the, the feeding miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. 20,000 people saw that on that particular day. But they didn't believe that Jesus was who he claims to be. Now, why was that? Well, look at verse 39. Can we all see verse 39 in our Bibles? For this reason, they could not believe... Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. He says that God has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. Now, if you just read that flat and didn't read anything else in the context... You would say, wouldn't you, that the cause of unbelief was God himself. You know, he blinded their eyes, he deadened their hearts. On the surface, it seems fairly cut and dried. But when we read the text carefully, as I know you will, we notice, don't we, that John is actually here quoting from two different passages in Isaiah's book. But those passages are very closely connected and by placing them side by side here, John is reminding us 
that the unbelief of the Jews in Isaiah 53 was actually the fulfillment of God's judgment to blind their eyes and deaden their hearts in Isaiah chapter 6. John has brought Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 together. Now, why would God do that? The blinding and the deadening. I mean, why would God prevent people from believing? Well, the judgment in Isaiah 6 came at the end of hundreds and hundreds of years of Israel's persistent rejection of God's rule and his gracious warnings. And you see, by quoting those passages here, John is saying that the same thing has happened all over again in the time of Jesus. And his summary of the situation in verse 37, now listen carefully to this, is that because the Jews would not believe Jesus' message or his miracles, the time came, verse 39, when they could not believe. So have you got it? They would not, and in the end, they could not. You see, unbelief always starts as a decision of the human will. That is the prime cause. But here, John is warning us that sometimes God intervenes in people's lives as an act of judgment to fix the decision they've made not to believe. And when God does that, how scary is this? Belief becomes impossible. This is the process which the Bible calls the hardening of the heart. I'd like to give you uh, an illustration so you get the pattern clear in your minds. Keep a finger in John 12. Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 34. Uh, while you're turning there, let me give you the context. The context is very familiar, arguably too familiar, perhaps, to some of us. Uh, every child in Sunday school will be able to tell you how God uh, commissioned Moses to rescue his people from Egypt and gave him miraculous signs to perform in order to persuade Pharaoh to submit to God's authority and let his people go. Now, by this point in the story, Exodus 9.34, God has brought seven plagues on Egypt so far, uh, as proof of him working through the ministry of Moses. But in each case, Pharaoh simply refused to believe. Uh, and, and in this passage, what happens is we find that Pharaoh himself reaches the point of no return. And I want you to notice extremely carefully the language that the Bible uses to describe it. Verse 34 when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Verse 35. So, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses... 
Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Now, friends, what I want you to notice is there is a process here. It starts in verse 34 with Pharaoh choosing to harden his heart. That's stage one. And uh, one Bible translation says that Pharaoh made his heart unresponsive to God. It was his decision. But then, stage two, verse 35, have a look at it. Stage two is that the decision Pharaoh made has had an effect on his heart. Do you see that? His heart is not the same as it was before. It's become hard. Now that means it's become strongly resistant to the Lord and to his servant Moses. And then, and only then, after plenty of evidence, lots of warnings, chapter 10, verse 1, we read that the Lord hardened his heart. In other words, there came a time when God sealed the choice that Pharaoh had made. And from that moment on, there was no way back. Now, dear friends, that should have us on the edge of our seats. Because what we want to know is, well, can our hearts be hardened like this? I mean, does God ever do to people today what he did to Pharaoh back then? And the answer is, he most certainly does. But what this text is teaching us is that God only does that. God only hardens people's hearts after we've ignored countless warnings and a deluge of evidence over and over and over again. You see, first and foremost, of course, the Bible is a book that is full of hope, full of opportunity for men and women to get right with God. It's a book of invitation and assurance to all people who want to have their sins forgiven and be given the gift of eternal life. That's the message of Easter. But friends, we also need to understand that persistent unbelief also has a hardening effect. Each time we say no to Almighty God, we're making it much harder for ourselves to say yes next time. And if we harden our hearts against God's Son, the Lord Jesus, well, sometimes God seals that decision so that repentance actually becomes impossible. Now, can I say, I think that means that we need to be very careful about who we invite to church and who we share the gospel with. The gospel is for everyone. Yes, it is. But there may be times when the right thing is to actually leave somebody alone. Uh, they may already have become so resistant that more of God's word will simply harden their hearts, make, make the situation far more difficult for them. And in those circumstances, I think the best thing we can do is get down on our knees and pray.
So that's the cause of unbelief. Come back to John 12, and let's move on and consider, secondly, the symptoms of unbelief. How can we tell whether we ourselves have contracted this disease? What are the symptoms? Uh, One obvious symptom, perhaps, is is sheer ignorance. Uh, People haven't heard the gospel, so they can't believe. But uh, here in Cape Town, that's not normally the case. So are there any other symptoms of unbelief? And you might say, well, Simon, it's perfectly obvious. Uh, Surely the people who've picked up this disease are the people who detest all forms of religion and therefore never go to church on Sunday. And John says, no, be careful. Some of the most serious cases can be found in church every Sunday morning. Come with me to verse 42. I want to show you how this works. Verse 42, John says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, now he's talking there about religious leaders, many, even among the religious leaders, believed in him, in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. So here were these religious people. Uh, John says they believed in Jesus. That's what he says in the text. In the sense that they were intellectually convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Uh, For them, the, the miracles and the teaching of Jesus were persuasive. Yes, they were. Now, there are lots and lots and lots of people like that today. But these people were not willing to act on that conviction and be known as Christians. Why not? Because the cost was too high. And what you and I need to understand this morning is that a person who is like that is not saved. That is not saving faith. Uh, In John's Gospel, the faith that saves a person and makes them certain of a place in heaven, is the new birth, the person who's had the new birth. And everyone who's experienced the new birth simply can't keep quiet about it. So cast your mind back, if you will, to the very first study we did in our series, where we read about Jesus, didn't we, opening the eyes of a man born blind. And you may remember that the Jewish authorities didn't like that very much, And they immediately wanted this man to denounce Jesus as a sinner and deny what Jesus had done for him. But it's very, very striking in John's account that even under the most intense pressure, the man stands firm for Jesus. Do you remember, he says, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, which is what you want me to say, well, I don't know. You're the experts. You must decide about that. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Now that is a sign of saving faith. The thing that Jesus had done for this man was so wonderful, he couldn't keep quiet about it. And of course for his pains, 
the authorities threw him out. But in our passage, that was a risk that these particular religious leaders were not willing to take. What was the reason? Verse 43. For they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. Well, that's very familiar, isn't it? They were people pleasers. They were not God pleasers. Now, that is one of the primary symptoms of unbelief. If I want to know whether I am really a believer or not this morning, a very good test uh, is to think of the person or people whose opinion I really value. Uh, It could be my spouse, could be a member of the family, maybe somebody I've been lifelong friends with. We went to school, we went to university together. The test of whether I'm truly a believer or not is not... Am I happy for them to know that I go to church every Sunday? That is not the test, because everybody in South Africa goes to church. The test is, am I happy for them to know that I'm a Christian, that Jesus has opened my eyes, that he has forgiven my sins, and he's given me new life? So listen to what one of the best American commentators says about these particular religious leaders in verse 42. There it is on the screen. He says, they were trying to do something that is ultimately impossible. They were trying to be secret disciples, and it is a contradiction in terms. For either secrecy kills discipleship, or discipleship kills secrecy. I find myself thinking these rulers were not the children of God at all. I find myself anxious that all who think that they believe should be Christ's true and open followers. Costly? Yes. But Christ said none otherwise. I absolutely love that little phrase, secrecy kills discipleship. Isn't that brilliant? I think it is. You know, if you want to be sure that you haven't got the disease of unbelief, then tell someone, a Christ, tell someone else you're a Christian and do it today. And I'm serious about that. Because Jesus gave one of his most severe warnings to people just like the men in verse 42. You know the verse, you don't need to look it up. But I'll read it for you. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. This is what Jesus said. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, sadly, people are behaving just like these religious leaders all the time today. Uh, They come to church, they hear the gospel. Privately, they admit to themselves that it's true. Uh, They know that the only wise thing to do is to commit their lives to him and trust Christ for the consequences, but they never do it. Uh, So think with me about the world of business for a moment. I suppose after two years of COVID, uh, anybody who still is in business knows a good deal when they see one. 
And if they didn't, they would surely have gone out of business, wouldn't they, during the lockdown? So using that kind of business sense, think about the absolutely terrible deal these religious leaders were making. Because they thought that holding on to their important friends for a few years and in the process incurring the wrath of Almighty God was a good deal. Was it a good deal? Well, of course it wasn't. But you see, what we're learning here this morning is that it takes courage to be a Christian. Anyone who says that being a Christian is for sissies hasn't the first idea what they're talking about. It's not easy to stand firm for Christ, especially when everyone around you is blaspheming his name and laughing at you. But let me ask you this question. What matters more? The hollow praise of a few friends who will be dead in a few years anyway, or the praise of the all-powerful, everlasting God? Well, you know the answer. And that brings us to the most important thing this morning, which is the cure for unbelief. Well, I guess all of us have been sick, haven't we, over the last two years, one way or another. And when we are, it's a great comfort, isn't it, if the doctor can recognize the symptoms of my sickness. It's also very helpful if he can tell me what caused the disease in the first place. But the main reason that I go to the doctor is so that he can make me well. I expect a cure. And so in verses 44 to 50, Jesus tells us that the cure for anyone suffering from the disease of unbelief is really quite simple. The patient must do two things. He must look and he must listen. Firstly, the patient must look. So come with me to verse 44. Can we all see verse 44? Because here John recalls a specific moment, a specific appeal in the ministry of Jesus, probably towards the end of his public, uh, his public ministry. Verse 44, Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So friends, the astonishing claim, and I think it is astonishing, the astonishing claim that Jesus is making here is that as we look at him, as we watch everything Jesus does, we're actually seeing God in our mind's eye. In other words, in his life, as it's recorded for us in the gospel, and especially in the miracles, Jesus reveals God in a life that absolutely everyone can understand. Let me uh, give you an illustration. <clears throat> uh, winter is upon us. So imagine the windows in your home or flat. Uh, over the winter season, what's going to happen is that the 
windows are going to get covered in dust and in streaks from rain. And after a few weeks, if we don't do anything about it, we're going to find that we're more conscious of the dirt on the window than we are of the view outside. So if we're sensible, we go out with a cloth and some hot water and we clean the windows and if we do a proper job, we find we can look through the glass to the view outside. Now that's what Jesus is talking about here. The promise here, and it is a promise, is that if we will look at him and keep on looking at him, then eventually we will realize that we are looking through him to the character of Almighty God. So the patient suffering from unbelief must look at Jesus. It sounds astonishingly simple. You would be amazed at how many people can't be bothered to do it. Second, the patient must look, but he must also, secondly, listen. Verse 47. Jesus says, verse 47, As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him or her at the last day. Now, I want you to notice here, please, that on the day of judgment, God is only going to be looking at one thing. He's going to be looking at what we did with Jesus' words. Did we accept them? Did we obey them? Did we treasure them? If we did, all will be well. If we did not... If we rejected the words of Jesus as too demanding, too intrusive, well, we'll be condemned. Now, that is not me saying that. That's Jesus. Now, why are his words the decisive factor? Verse 49. For I did not speak of my own accord... But the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So when we listen to the teaching of Jesus, we are listening to the words of Almighty God himself. Words which point the way to heaven. So, dear friends, it's hardly surprising, isn't it, if we choose not to listen? In the end, we will be lost. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Easter approaches, many people we know will hear your word, perhaps for the only time during the year.
Lord, we pray that rather than hardening their hearts, you would cause them to open their hearts and minds to trust in Christ so that they might be saved. And we pray for anyone here this morning struggling with unbelief, that as they look at Jesus and listen to his words, they will find their faith revived and a new joy to sustain them on the road ahead. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.